Esther chapter 4. <clears throat> this is the reading, or this is the, the word of God. Give it your full attention. When Mordecai had learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he, he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for the for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Our Lord and God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And we do thank you for grace and for mercy, for bringing us to this place for worship on this day. Give to us ears to hear, hearts to believe and minds to understand. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less that you and you alone may become more. Let your people not hear me or see me, but hear you, see you and obey you. For the glory of God and for the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You may remember the last time that we discussed the conflict that we find present in the book of Esther. It is a conflict of or between the powers of darkness and the kingdom of God. The book of Esther is a story of conflict. A conflict that originated in the Garden of Eden between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that conflict has continued until this very day. Therefore, in light of that conflict and in light of what we learned last time, we learned last time that God's cause and people are never free from opposition and hostility in this world. There was an edict. A decree was sent out by wicked Haman. To annihilate all the Jews, King Ahasuerus has given his signet ring to, to authorize this day of genocide and destruction. It is the 13th day of the 12th month. All the Jews 
young, old, men, women, in one day will be killed and their goods will be plundered. The seed of the serpent attempting to derail the plans and purposes of God. But the plans and purposes of God will never be derailed. The plans and purposes of God cannot be thwarted. The Lord Jesus promised his disciples and all who call upon his name in John 16:33, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world as believers. We must expect that we will be persecuted because of our faith in Christ alone in this world. We will never be free from opposition, but we in the midst of opposition, we have hope. And what is that hope? Is that Christ has overcome the world. Christ is victorious. We learned that godly nonconformity is often the righteous option for the believer. Mordecai refused to obey the king's command to bow down and to pay homage to wicked Haman. While all the servants were bowing with faces low, Mordecai stood in nonconformity. Why? Haman was a man that was bent on the destruction of the Jews. And this did not go past the knowledge of Mordecai. He would not pay down, bow down and pay homage to a man who despised God and the people of God, even though it had been decreed as law by the king. When he asked or when he was asked, why do you transgress the king's command? Mordecai has one response. I am a Jew. That's the only response that he gives when they come and ask him, why are you not bowing down? I'm a Jew, he says. And it is a response that implies more than meets the eye. Mordecai says, I'm a Jew. In other words, I belong to the people of God and I will not bow down to a man who opposes God. Brothers and sisters, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be times, there will be times when laws of the land conflict with the law of God prescribed in his word. And when those days come, what will our responses be in those times? Will we continue to hold fast to God's word proclaiming, let God be true and every man a liar? Or will we bow our knees to Baal and to also the so-called progressive times of today? I pray that your resolve will always be to stand, to stand, even if you are standing as Athanasius Contramundi against the world, to stand for the word of God. And finally, we learned last time that there are times when God's cause and purposes in this world may appear to be Hopeless. There may be times when it seems that all is hopeless. There may be times when it seems that all is lost. There may be times when it seems that the promises of God will never or not be fulfilled. But brothers and sisters, fret not. Do not worry. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Jesus said, or God said in Isaiah 55, 11, so is my word that goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And so here are the Jews. There has been an evil edict, an evil decree that has been devised by Haman and backed by Ahasuerus to kill, to annihilate the Jews all the way from India to Africa. Esther 3.15 the city of Susa was thrown into confusion as the documents were being spread. The people were in panic and in confusion. We're going to die. All seems to be lost. All seems to be hopeless. In these verses, we see on one hand the reaction of the Jews, the reaction of Mordecai, and on the other also the reaction of Esther. It would seem that this decree placed the Jews in a state of hopelessness. They were doomed to destruction by the mightiest empire in all of the world, the Persian Empire. What could they do? They were a weak people who were subjected to the decrees of evil men with seemingly no hope to be saved at all. What could they do? And it is in the midst of 
utter hopelessness. It is in the midst of that hopeless situation that God, as he so often does, raises up a man. How often do we find in the scriptures and post scriptures that God's answer to the hopelessness of his people is to raise up a man who will faithfully speak his word and stand upon the sureness of his covenant faithfulness. This is what God does in the life of Mordecai. The Lord raises up a man that would stand in the gap for his people. Mordecai views this decree, this evil, wicked, wicked decree to annihilate the Jews. He views this decree not only as being, listen now, circumstantial, but also as being theological. What do I mean by that? Meaning this, Mordecai was dismayed. We will see that his response is the common response of the Eastern culture. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, but he does not remain dismayed. He understands that there is a deeper truth happening behind the scenes. That God in his sovereignty is ordering and ordaining all of human history for his glory. And that this is just one scene in that great cosmic story of God. Dear ones, I pray that you will learn in this chapter that we are not called to view our lives through the grid of our circumstances but to view all of our lives from the perspective of God's unconditional sovereignty and his gracious covenant faithfulness. Here is the God, or he is the God, who has covenanted himself. He has pledged himself on oath to be the God of his people and to preserve his people. Jesus has promised in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not shall not prevail against it. In these days, when we see so little to encourage us, we can so easily be discouraged and disheartened by what we see and what we experience and what we go through. But we must remain or remind ourselves that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all that we see, in the midst of all of we, that we go through, God is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. God is at work. God is behind the veil, working out human history for his glory and for our good. In the midst of it all, in the midst of all of that, not one person will be lost for whom the Savior died. In the midst of all of that, not one person for whom Christ has died will be lost. Whatever our circumstances are saying to us, never forget, brothers and sisters, the Lord reigns. Whatever our circumstances are saying to us, never forget, brothers and sisters, the Lord reigns. And he has promised, he has pledged in covenant faithfulness, and he's promised in covenant blood even, to be the protector and the preserver of his people. You must understand, the world is ignorant of this. That which I just spoke to you of, the world is ignorant of that. They are blind to this truth. They look to the church and they see weakness. They look to the church and they see feebleness. They seem what we believe as, as to be archaic thoughts, archaic beliefs. And all the while, God is still building his church. We must never be deceived by the assessment of the world. We must never be sucked into caring about what the world thinks concerning the health of the church. They know not what health is. They are sick. They are deaf. They are blind. God is building his church. No matter what we see and no matter what the world thinks, God is building his church. And in the book of Esther, there was a man that God raised up who could see what everyone else could not see. Who could see what everyone was blind to. Mordecai. Let's look at the three reactions this morning. Number one, the reaction of the Jews. Number one. The reaction of the Jews, Esther chapter 4, verse 3, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. We must remind ourselves of what is being told to us here. What's going on here? If you read that passage, what do you say is happening? 
This is not just a picture of men and women who are mourning according to the Eastern culture. They put on sackcloth sackcloth and ashes. You know what that is? You see it much in the Bible. Sackcloth is a coarse black cloth made of goat's hair or made from goat's hair that was worn together with burnt ashes from wood. It was a sign of mourning. But that's not the point of this passage. It is to point us, if the point is to point us to the common culture of the day, the common actions of the day, then we're missing the, the, the big picture. We are given a picture here of people who have come to see the desperate times. They've come to see their hopelessness. And they are now, and listen close, they are now perhaps for the very first time for many, turning to God in their hopelessness and crying out to God for mercy. That's the point of this passage. It's not a point of the culture of the day. It's a point of the spiritual health of the day. And in the midst of this despair, in the midst of this hopelessness, the people turn to God. We have noted throughout this book of Esther, the name of God is never mentioned, and yet God is everywhere present. In this passage, we notice in verse 3 that the people began to fast. And although there is no mention of prayer, there is no fasting without prayer. They begin to mourn. They begin to weep. They begin to lay in ashes. They begin to fast. And they begin to, to pray. What do you think they were doing as they mourned? What do you think they were doing as they wept? What do you think they were doing as they lamented or, and laid in ashes? They did what anyone who has found himself or herself with any sense would do. They cry out to God. We are being told here that these people in the most desperate and dire times, turn to God and cry out to him for mercy. What are we seeing? We're seeing a spiritual awakening. Maybe for the first time in the people of God, for the first time, they are being awakened to their need of God. These people who did not go back to Jerusalem, but who stayed in Susa, the capital. These people were, who they apparently continued in their Jewish customs, and obey the laws of God, as Haman notes to Ahasuerus, but it appears that they may have become complacent in the Persian Empire, with all of its wealth, with all of its prosperity. But glory to God. God has ways of awakening His church and bringing us, bringing you and I, to a heartfelt sense of our desperate need for Him. And this is exactly what God has done Through Haman's evil, wicked decree. Haman has made a plan. He's made a decree. Let's kill all of the Jews. He and Ahasuerus sit back and toast to the plans that they believe. They are sovereignly decreeing. But through it all, the Lord God Almighty is exercising his eternal counsel. And he is using these wicked men and their evil plans to bring about A heartfelt sense in his people. He's using this wicked, evil plan to awaken his people to their desperate need for him. Haman and Ahasuerus think that they're in control, but they're simply pawns in the hand of the sovereign Lord of the universe. God is, if you will, hemming his people in. He's trapping his people into a corner in order that they may see their desperate need for him and cry out to him. For mercy and for grace and for saving, it is very likely, God knows in his infinite wisdom, it is very likely that it took this great crisis in order to awaken the Jews once again to their desperate need for God. It took this desperate cry, it took this evil edict, you're going to die. It took this to awaken the Jews to their desperate need for God. And for all of us, we know what this means to some degree. There are times when it takes a crisis of some magnitude in order to bring to us a fresh fresh sense of, of seriousness, spiritual seriousness in our own lives. We so often drift into complacency, thinking that we're fine, thinking that we are without any need. We are often like the churches of Sardis and Laodicea. We become half-hearted. We become complacent in our worship and devotion to God. And all the while we think we're fine. 
But God sees our hearts. God knows our minds. He says in Revelation 3.15, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you either be hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He says to those who thought they were fine, you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I am in need of nothing. Not realizing, he says, to those who say them, I'm, I'm rich, I've prospered, I have everything I need. He says to them, yet you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. To those who think they're fine, to those who say we are in need of nothing, and God says you're blind, you can't see. Because we don't see, and the Lord sends a crisis of some magnitude to awaken our slumber, to awaken us out of our sleeping in order to bring us to a new heartfelt sense of our need for God. We might say, God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't intentionally send calamity my way. Wouldn't he? Hasn't he? But God would not send a crisis, right? God would... God would not be the one who sends it my way. God would not send calamity. That's the work of the devil. Brothers and sisters, dear ones, it would be very easy for us to blame and attribute all of hard, all of the hard and devastating hardships of life. It would be easy for us to attribute all those things to Satan and to the devil to get God off the hook, as it were. But God is not looking for anyone to get him off the hook. He's not looking for anyone to save him or to spare him. He says in Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being. And if you keep reading, he says, and I create calamity. I am the Lord, just in case you were confused about who is the I speaking. I am the Lord who does these things. God does this. Why? To awaken our souls and bring us to himself. Brothers and sisters, look back at your life. Think about all of the hard and difficult things that you have experienced. And notice the hand of God through it all. For some of you it might have been death. For some of you it might have been sickness. It was a vehicle crash. It was a heartbreak. It was financial or material loss. At the time, we may have thought or felt like this was all being summed up as being tragic meaninglessness. But those things were not meaningless. Those things were not meaningless. God sent and used those things to bring you to himself. God would not do such a thing, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he? Hasn't he? Did God not send his own son to be bruised, smitten, rejected of men? Did God not send his own son and spare him not the cross? What was the purpose of Christ enduring the cross? Was it not to bring all of God's sheep to himself? Therefore, if God did not spare his own son, enduring the cross in order to bring you to himself, what makes you think he will not allow you to have a disease in order to bring you to himself, in order to, to awaken our souls to our desperate need of God? Why wouldn't he allow a loved one of yours? To die in order to bring you to himself. In order to awaken you of your desperate need for him. Why wouldn't he do that? If he would send his own son, then why not your own father? Die so that you could be awakened. Brothers and sisters, he has already shown there is no length that our God will go to in order to bring his people to himself. And he has proved that in the sending of his own son. He will not stop at any length to save his people from a ruined and damned eternity. He will stop at nothing. He is a God who will destroy everything around you. Everything. He'll destroy everything around you. Ask Job. He'll destroy everything around you if only that it might bring you to your senses and cause you to cry out for mercy. He will destroy everything around you. And let me tell you that when he does and when you come to him, you will bless God for all eternity that he did so. You will bless him for all eternity that he did so. The question is this. Though. 
Will you wait for the calamity to come in order to turn to him? Will you wait for the moment in which you are hemmed in, as it were, before finally you begin to begin to fall on your knee and worship God alone? I pray that you do not wait for calamity, that you turn to him today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as those who wandered in the desert for so long. In the book of Esther, we see the Jews were hemmed in. Nowhere to turn. So they finally turned to God. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters. Where do you turn when you have nowhere to turn? Where do you turn when you have nowhere to turn? It has often been said that man's extremity is God's opportunity. It is often when all of our props... All of our dependencies, all of our comforts are removed. When the bottom, as it were, has fallen out, that we finally begin to seek after God and to hear his word in a new way, in a new way. What do you do when the lights go out? What do you do when the darkness has so enveloped you that there is not a pin's prick of light to give you hope? It took this crisis to shake these people out of their indifference and turn finally to God. What will it take for you? C.S. Lewis, and I don't quote him often, says, God whispers to us in our pleasures and he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. This is true in general, but it is particularly true for the people of God. What will it take to awaken you, brothers and sisters, friends, visitors? What will it take for God to arouse you out of your sleeping and out of your slumber, out of your spiritual indifference? What will it take? For me, it was a car crash. For my brother Isaiah, for Pastor Zay, it was the death of our father. For John, it was going to Camp Owens as a young boy. What about you? What will it take? What will it take for you to finally awaken to your desperate need for God before it's too late? We know of great verses in this chapter, this chapter four. I spoke to one of our customers who wanted to to desperately know all that we were teaching in this in this uh, in this church. And as I said to to her, uh, we're teaching through the book of Esther, an older lady who's about 70, gone to seminary. She says, oh, my favorite verse is for such a time as this. Sure it is. And praise God for that verse. Another may say, my favorite verse is if I perish, I perish. And God, to God be the glory for all of those verses. But maybe the verses that we should really take note of are there was great mourning. Among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. For this is when finally the people turn to their God. Brothers and sisters, God has never yet blessed prayerlessness. God has never yet blessed prayerlessness. He does not answer those who do not pray. That was one of the great examples of the early church. The Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer was not incidental. It was fundamental. Prayer was not supplemental. It was central to what the early church did. They gathered together and they prayed. When we gathered for prayer, when this local church gathers for prayer, there should not be one person, person missing from that gathering of prayer. There should not be one person miss, missing. We said, hey, we're going to pray and, and we're going to have food. Everybody showed up. The next week he said, we're going to pray. No food. Only a few show up. There should not be one person missing when we pray. The early church gathered hour after hour praying, hour after hour hearing the word of God. They could not get enough of God and his word and prayer. And then we wonder, why was the early church so powerful? Why was the early church so vital? Maybe it was because they never departed from being in God's word and staying in prayer and fellowship with God. 
Magnitudes were gathered. Multitudes were gathered as they prayed and as they sought God. So back to Esther. We see the response of the people. They, with great mourning, fasting, weeping, lamenting, lay in sackcloth and ashes. The great signs of spiritual repentance. The great signs of spiritual awakening. Number two, the reaction of Mordecai. Esther chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried aloud with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gates in sackcloth and ashes. Here is a man whose first response is utter hopelessness. Here is a man whose first response is utter hopelessness. The news that he receives fills him with such anguish, with such distress. And he goes into the middle of the city and cries aloud. It would appear as for Mordecai. All of the lights have gone out. What is he to do? All of the lights have gone out. What can he do? And the great feature of Mordecai's response and despair is that his first response is not his final response. His first response is not his final response. Mordecai has made a scene in the middle of the city. He's now at the king's gate and he is once again making a scene. Esther has gotten word of her cousin and sent her servant Hathach to go and find out what is happening. What's going on with Mordecai? Mordecai tells Esther all that has taken place. And he's even given Hathach a document, the document, to show Esther all that is happening. Verse 8. He tells Hathach to tell Esther, go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Esther, what is her response? She's afraid. This is suicide for me to go to the king without being beckoned to come to the king. And Mordecai's response to her is verse 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai is in anguish. He is weeping, weeping, peeping. He's weeping bitterly. And yet, here he is in the midst of his despair. Here he is in the midst of, of his utter hopelessness. Saying to Esther, if you keep silent, you need to know that relief and deliverance will come. It will rise for the people of God. How did he know this? How did Mordecai know that relief and deliverance would come? There was nothing in the works. There was nothing at all to give Mordecai any kind of hope that the people would be saved. Nothing that he could see at least. How could he be so sure? How could he be so confident that relief would come? The only answer is that in the distress of Mordecai, he remembers the promises of God. That in, in the midst of his distress... He remembers the promises of God. He remembers Isaiah 50 uh, verse 10. Let him who walks in the darkness and has no light yet trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Mordecai is holding fast to the promises of God. His absolute confidence in the, in the covenant faithfulness of his God to rescue his, his covenant people is his not first reaction. His final reaction. You know your first reactions. When a bad report comes, you know what your first reactions are. They are despair. They are hopelessness. They are fear. They are worry. They are, they are despondency. And bless God, that is not where many of you stay. That somehow, someway through the midst of your despair, somehow, someway through the midst of your hopelessness, God reminds you of his word. In his despair. Mordecai is confessing his faith in the promises of God. There is no doubt in Mordecai's heart and in his mind that God will step in. That God will somehow, some way, preserve his people. He refused to allow the darkness and the dark circumstances to deflect him from his confidence in God. 
That is what you do, brothers and sisters. That's when you do the, when the lights go out. That's what you do when it seems that there is no hope at all. That's what you do. You hold fast to the promises of God. This is where you turn when you have nowhere to turn. When the bottom drops out, you hold fast to the promises of God. Mordecai believed that the character of God was being undergirded and supported by the promises of God. The character of God, who God is, is being undergirded by what God has promised And he has not yet failed, and he never will fail, to fulfill what he has promised. Mordecai believed that if God spoke it, then God was bound by his own being on covenant oath to perform it in spite of what was happening around him. That God would somehow, some way step in. You need to hold on to that for your own lives. You need to know that for your own lives. Isaiah 41, 11, Behold, all who are incensed or incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, verse 14, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And you should know this passage well. No weapon, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. This, this is why Mordecai was able to speak with such confidence in perilous times. The the relief and deliverance will come because God is on our side. Here is this man who believed in God, who believed that God on oath was bound to perform it. Brothers and sisters, faith is no more nourished and strengthened than when it meditates on the character and promises of God. It's no more nourished and strengthened than when you meditate on the promises and person of God. That is when your faith grows. When all seems to be lost, you meditate on God. Meditate on God because God is the one who is in control. They are the promises of him who cannot lie. That should be the pillow that you sleep on at night. These I rest on the promises of him who cannot lie and has bound himself to his people in Christ. The interesting thing about Mordecai is, although he surely believed in God, he did not sit back and wait for God to act. You see that? We have already established that Mordecai believed in God, but he didn't go into a hole and say, okay, God, now I'll just wait to see what happens. He does not, if you will, let go and let God. Rather, he takes what steps he can. He does what he can do to overcome Haman's wicked plan and knowing that in the midst of whatever he's doing, God will be with him. Do you see that? Uh, God will figure it out. I don't know. Unsafe people in your family. I don't know. I just, you know, I just pray And they're in your house every single day. Say something to them. You're looking for a job. I don't know. Someone will knock on my door one day and give me a job. It'll happen. Go put an application. Right? You cannot expect God to somehow magically make things happen when you sit there and do nothing. Mordecai prayed, but Mordecai was also trusting that as he acted, God would be with him. In a sense, Mordecai was his own answer to his own prayer. Mordecai is his own answer to his own prayer. He is praying, God, do something. God says, okay, I'll send you. Lord, send people to the nations to share the gospel. Lord, I have this great passion and burden for the nations to hear the gospel. Send someone, Lord. Okay, I'll send you. Do you see that? Lord, send someone to the marketplace. Okay, go. 
Lord, send someone to share with my, my wife, my husband, my daughter, my children. I'll send you. Why not you? You have the burden. You have the passion. Why are you praying for, to God to do things that he is sending you to do? You are often the answer to your own prayers. Do you see that? Do what you can do and trust that as you do what you can do, God will be with you. And he will somehow sovereignly work. We must not sit back and wait for God to do things for us that he has purposely given, a, given us passions and abilities to perform. Mordecai goes, approaches Esther, intervene Esther, act Esther, verses 7 and 8. Beg her, he even commands her, the Bible says, to go to the king on, her, on the pe- behalf of the people. Mordecai could see. He could see what Esther could not see. God has brought you to the kingdom for this reason. He could see what she was, was ignorant to, what she was blind to, that God has brought you to this place for this time. Verse 13. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house <coughs> will perish. And who knows? Who knows? Whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. All of Esther's life, and we don't know how old she was. All of Esther's life had been preparation for this moment. We never know, do we? All of the different things that we've experienced in our lives. The ups and the downs, the difficulties, the joys. We never really understand what it is all for, do we? Perhaps until the moment when God shows us it has all been for this moment. Until you finally look back and you start to see these, these flashbacks in your mind of all the things that you've experienced. And then all of a sudden, all of the pieces start coming together and you realize it was for this. It was for this day. It was for this time. It was for this moment. I can say that about my own life. Have you yet seen that in your own life as well? Have you come to see how things have been ordered in your lives for specific moments? All of Esther's life had been preparation for that moment. The issue was, would she, would she be able to see it? Would she be able to see that? Or would her fears, would her fears eclipse her faith? Would she be able to see it? Or would self-interest, self-preservation, would those things prevail over what she was born to do? Can you imagine? All the things before and all the things after did not, all the things leading up to that, all matter. And all the things of her future, all would be a result of that moment. The question stood unknown for Mordecai. Who knows? Whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Indeed, brothers and sisters, who knows? Who knows whether or not the Lord has brought you here to this church at this hour for such a time as this? Maybe if someone would have told you a year ago that you would be sitting in a reformed Baptist church, Reformation Bible church, you would have never believed it. And what do you know? Here you are. Who knows if God has not brought you to this place for such a time as this? Perhaps you're facing a choice in your life. Which way to go? Possibly some challenge in your life. And it all could be for that specific moment. Your whole life has been preparation for that specific choice that you're going to make. Who knows? What we do know is that God knows. And there is nothing incidental or accidental in our lives. Who knows? God knows. I'm reminded of the blind beggar who was born blind all of his life. Born blind, all that he experienced in all of his life. And then sitting at the same gate that he sat at every single day, begging for relief, begging for help. And all of it was for that one day 
that the son of David would pass his way and say to him, do you believe in the son of man? Did he know that he would be in the halls of faith of the one who says, I once was blind, but now I see. He never knew that he was born for such a time as that. Born blind, lived a life of difficulty until one day the Savior passed his way. And now we remember him for eternity as the one who said, I once was blind, but now I see. That amazing grace song, yes, we know the song, but did you know who said I once was blind, but now I see it was that poor, desperate beggar who may not have been rich in life, but it was right now rich in glory, rejoicing in the kingdom of God. Born for such a time as this, Mordecai could see that the hand of God was in the midst of that crisis. And do you know that God shapes you in the midst of crisis? You go into those crises as you are and God brings you out someone else. You go into those crises who you are and God brings you out someone else. I'm not the man I was five years ago. Coming up on six years ago. Believe me, I listened to a CD from six years ago. I don't even know who that is. He's a child. He shapes and fastens you for those moments and then brings you out so much better. Will you have the foresight, though, to see the hand of God in the midst of that? Who knows? God knows. God knows. Third and finally, the reaction of Esther. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. There is a sense here that Esther is is embarrassed by her older cousin. Come now, Mordecai. Get a hold of yourself. This This is embarrassing. Put some clothes on. Mordecai would not have it. He sends a message back to her. Go, go speak to the king. Verse 10. All the provinces know that if she says all the provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come to the king for these 30 days. What's a reaction? Do you know what you're asking me to do? You're asking me to commit suicide. Sure death. If I go into the king's palace without being beckoned, without being called, I will be put to death. Do you know what you're asking me to do? I'm young. I have my whole life ahead of me and you're asking me to commit suicide. For some years, Esther has been a closet believer. She has been a believer in hiding. She was a believer, yeah, in hiding. And now Mordecai is calling her to come out of hiding and to reveal to the world who she really is. You are going to kill my people. All this time, what has she done? She has kept her people a secret. And now Mordecai is saying, go and tell the king who you and your people are. You want me to expose myself, to show who I really am? Do you know that it is certain death if I do so? That's her initial reaction. But thank God that initial reactions are not our final reactions. Her initial reaction is to run away. But for those who truly belong to God, we finally have a reaction that says, to whom else can we go? Like Peter, you alone have the words of eternal life. Mordecai challenges Esther. Who knows if you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, by the grace of God, rises to the challenge in faithfulness. She says to Mordecai, go, verse 16, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. Esther has come to see that the cause of her covenant Lord and the cause of his covenant people take precedence over every other cause, even over her very own life itself. If it costs her everything, even her own life, 
She has resolved to seek God's kingdom and cause. She has everything to lose. Everything to lose. She, listen, she has it all. She's the queen. And she has everything to lose. Because of exposing who she is. Because exposing who she believes. And if she says anything to us at all, it is a subtle rebuke that we must not hold on to our comfort, that we must not cling to our ease, that we must not hold tightly to the things that will eventually be consumed, but that we are willing to yield up anything for Christ, even if it means our own lives. We prefer, we prefer material things, right? We prefer, we prefer material offerings. But it's in a world that is passing away. Will you risk your own comforts for the sake of Christ? She had it all. And she says, if I perish, I perish. And Christ calls all of us to risk all today. It's a fearful thought to accept what following Christ may bring to your lives. You may be listening, heard, heard all of this, and maybe you're not a believer. Who knows whether you have come to this place today for this time to hear the gospel, that God is holy, and that you have sinned against him in Adam, and you've sinned against him in your own lives, that you were unwilling and unable to come to God on your own. You would have never came to God. You would have had no desire to come to God in your hearts. You hated God. And you sat, as it were, as a dead beggar on the side of the road. And this morning, this time, this day, the Lord Jesus Christ is passing your way. And he is asking you, do you believe in the Son of Man? That the Lord Jesus Christ has come and lived a life that we could never live. He came and died a death that we deserved. That he rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave. And there is nothing that you can do to save yourself, but that you must throw yourself at the foot of the cross, trusting that Christ and Christ alone can save you. Repent of your sins this morning. Repent and turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Turn from your sins. And accept the cost that if you perish, you perish. But it will all be for the glory and kingdom of God. And you will not die a second death, but you will live eternally with God forever. For that Christ has purchased for you at the cross. He has purchased your forgiveness, your redemption, and your eternal life. Will you turn to him this morning? Or will you wait for a calamity to come? Let us stand.